Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear, and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts of this podcast, and I am joined by Dr. Nate Brooks of RTS, uh, who we will introduce uh, more in depth here after we look to God's word. So our verse that we want to look at, Psalm 119, 17 through 18, deal generously with your servant so that I might live, then I will keep your word. Open my eyes that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom it provides us. We pray that as we discuss it here today, that you would uh, give us wisdom to understand. We need your help, and so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So joined today by Dr. Nate Brooks, who is the Associate Professor of Christian Counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Charlotte. How are you? Doing well this morning. How about you, Austin? Doing well. So Dr. Brooks is a dear friend of mine and has graciously agreed to do this. So Normally, you have Isaac Adams, a seminary graduate, and Austin Souter, a seminary student. But today, we have a seminary professor here to talk about reading and understanding the Bible. So we are thankful for the wisdom you bring to us and wanted to talk this morning about diversity in understanding the Bible. So you hear folks talking about bringing ethnic diversity to the interpretation of Scripture and the positives of that, but we wanted to talk through that. So as a central question, why is ethnic diversity important when trying to understand the Bible? Well, I think we need to understand, even before we get to ethnic diversity, that God himself has designed human beings to be diverse. Uh, When we think of God's good design of humanity inside the Garden of Eden, God designed humans to be diverse in gender. Uh, We have a creation of both male and female. And I I think in some ways it's easier to start with the question that we can have perhaps more agreement on as Christians than perhaps questions of uh, ethnicity, race, etc. But when it comes to gender, we just see that God's original design for humanity was for there to be differing perspectives, not contradictory perspectives, but different uh, perspectives that lead to different emphases and things like that, even in God's original design before uh, the fall happened. So uh, ethnic diversity is certainly a different kind of diversity, and, and that speaks to differences in culture, differences in perspectives due to kind of the situations in which we have lived and the communities that we're a part of. Uh, And it's important to understand that ethnic diversity, as it would with gender diversity, it it brings a different uh, perspective, a different angle, a different lens onto Scripture, we could say. I think that's great. And there's a a C.S. Lewis quote that I try to bring up at least once a season, and listeners are probably tired of hearing from it. But he wrote that every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes. And he deduces from that that therefore we need to read old books in order to gain different wisdom. And that's just a different kind of diversity that you're speaking about there that he noted that writers of certain ages are especially insightful on certain topics and perhaps especially wrong on certain topics. And we see the same thing in in ethnicities. Is that true, you think? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, spent some time earlier this year working through uh, George Marsden's 
uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I'd read a different autobiography back when I was in seminary, but hadn't ever approached uh, Marsden's work. And it's about 500 pages. It's a commitment to, to work through. But one of the things that struck me was... Uh, far be it from me to critique Jonathan Edwards too much, but but how lousy Edwards's theology was in certain large categories. Uh, when you look at his kind of political philosophy, his end times uh, theology, you know he he was an individual who was devoted to attempting to predict when the earth was going to end, when the Lord was going to come back. That doesn't and, usually go well. No, and, and we kind of forget that, right? We, we, we don't think about how uh, that was a large question that Edwards was attempting to answer. And, and that's kind of fallen off. We, we read things like original sin, uh, religious affections, the answer which God created the world. We don't read that stuff of Edwards anymore. And uh, I think it's important to remember that every single theologian is idiosyncratic to their own age. And also, uh, if we're honest, every single uh, theologian, every Christian is idiosyncratic when it comes to their own culture as well. I think that's, that's really insightful. I wanted to ask you to define something. This may be a term which is not familiar to some of our listeners, but I think it's important, the idea more so than the word. Uh, but we speak of perspicuity of Scripture. What do we mean by that? What do theologians mean? Yeah, so when we speak of the perspicuity of Scripture, what we're simply speaking of there is the clarity of Scripture. Uh, human beings have the ability through the uh, illumination of the Holy Spirit to pick up, read their Bibles, and understand its message. This is very important because it, it means that we don't need a priest to interpret uh, the Scripture for ourselves, uh, or for us. We're able to uh, read the Bible, as God intended us to, and perceive the message that He wants us to draw from it. It's not a book full of hidden riddles. Rather, it's a book that's messages out there in the open that even a small child could understand. And I think you alluded to it there that this this idea kind of came or was more pronounced after the Protestant Reformation, and it, it uh, is important because we don't need professionals. It affirms the priesthood of all believers in order to understand the Bible. But I think the follow-up question to that is if that's true and if Christians are able to understand the Bible, why then do we sometimes come to different conclusions? That's a great question, Austin. And I mean, that's been one of the hallmarks of, of Christianity from the get-go is just understanding that there are a uh, multiplicity of ways that we read texts, conclusions we come to. I remember when I first uh, was, I was uh, went to a Christian college, and uh, I was a business major. But I, I went ahead and took a preaching class, and I remember it was it was actually really shaking to me to take this preaching class because our professor uh, required us to use seven commentaries uh, in the preparation of our own practice sermons. I'm so thankful that my practice sermons were not recorded <laughs> and are not out there because I am sure they were absolute garbage. But uh, God is merciful in in time. Uh, but but one of the things that I found really shaking, actually, was I began opening up these uh, commentaries that were written by people whose last names I knew and knew were faithful. Uh, and so often, so many of them had different interpretations of the actual text itself. Now, big picture, they wound up with kind of the same general uh, theological framework. But when it came to the individual texts themselves, uh, there were disagreements over what the emphases may be in this text, or what was in the background of the text, or what Paul or Peter or whoever was alluding to in this text. And I found that to be very disconcerting, kind of as a, a younger Christian, 
saying, well, how is it that kind of the best scholars we've produced in our age can't even agree on what a particular text is, not its overall message per se, but kind of how it fits in all of that? And and so this is just one of those things that the, the Christians uh, have to come to terms with. I, I think one reason that we throw out immediately is just human sinfulness, right? I mean, we we are broken individuals that even after the Holy Spirit has invaded our hearts, regenerated our hearts, transformed us, and continues to transform us, we're still fallen. And there are some passages of Scripture that, frankly, we don't want to understand because it threatens us. There are some teachings of Scripture that we just remain blind to, not out of any kind of hostility to the Bible's teaching, but we're just not there yet. Uh, Philippians 3 uh, is an interesting passage where Paul essentially says, look, there's lots of things you don't understand yet, but don't worry about it. Uh, the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you progressively. Just, just live to the truth you've attained there. I think that's an encouraging thing to me as, as I look at the fact that I, I am consistently growing. But I think there's other reasons besides just human sin, and, and all of them are ultimately wrapped around finitude. All of us are finite human beings who are not omniscient. God is the only one who is omniscient. And so you see there being just a, a difference of age, uh, different texts. I read different texts differently now the ripe old age of 35 than I did when I was 15, right? And, and there are passages that I'm, the same passages I may read quite differently when I'm 75 and looking back on a lifetime, should the Lord give me those many years. There's differences of experience, there's differences of perspective. Uh, so none of these things are a threat to the perspicuity, to the clarity of Scripture, but rather it's all of us come to the Scripture looking through a little bit different windows into the same room, and those windows change with age, with culture, etc. So understanding diversity and perspicuity together, is it fair to say that different Christians will say different true things about the same verses? Oh, absolutely. And that's how it can be helpful. I think that's how it's intended to be. Because if Christians only ever had one thing to say about the Scriptures, ultimately we wind up exhausting the message of the Scriptures. And we don't want to go there as Christians, as the Word of God is living and active, and it's a window into God's own heart, which is ultimately inexhaustible to us. And we see this happening as we look around you and I as, you know, students of the Bible here at seminary, there are still books being written about this ancient text where people are still learning new things. Yeah, absolutely. So your professor who had you read all these different commentaries, he, he taught you something there. What do you think the Bible says about wisdom coming through diversity? Well, one verse that comes to mind immediately is Proverbs fifteen twenty two, and that's where the Lord says, plans fail when there is no counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. You know, if, if there was only one... Uh, valid interpretation of life, if there is only one valid interpretation of a text we, we, and how a text applies to life, we really wouldn't need a multiplicity of advisors. But rather, even here, uh, Solomon is, is pushing us to understand that there are there is a great amount of wisdom to be gained by many counselors because those many counselors will have a divergence of opinions. Um, you know, I'm a professor of Christian counseling, as you mentioned. I do a lot of counseling myself. And even as I'm walking through uh, issues that people may bring, uh, there are plenty of times that I'll go and uh, with uh, people's privacy and anonymity certainly protected, go talk to other counselors and say, hey, this is how I'm reading this. Let me give you a summary. Is this what you think is most helpful? Right? I mean, part of that's just a certain degree of humility of our own, uh, the, the limitations we ourselves have. 
But in an abundance of counselors, I'm able to provide better care for individuals than if it's just myself because I know there's going to be a diversity of uh, opinions, of uh, kind of takes on a situation. And I think the world understands this in part because the world is placing, especially right now, such an emphasis on diversity and uh, you know, learning from others. But what the world can get wrong and what we want to be careful not to do is that non-Christians can sometimes locate truth in experience. And that's not what we're saying. That's right. So when we talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, what we're saying is that the Bible is clear. The Bible is uh, what we need for life. However, different perspectives draw out different facets of that truth, different applications of that truth, different nuances of that truth. Uh, we're not saying that our experience determine what truth is. I think there that's a go. really, really important thing to, to, to point out there, Austin. Well, you, you summed it up so well there. So let's go to a specific case study here. How is it that Christians in America have gotten race and racism so wrong over the years? Well, I assume you mean how did we do it and not like the particulars of what's the story? Right. Yeah, how we get it so wrong? Well, uh, I think we go back to how what we talked about a little bit earlier of how is it that we wind up missing things in the text? And first and foremost is human sinfulness. And one of the one of the th reasons that I mentioned was that uh, sometimes we don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. And frankly, if uh, we can enrich ourselves to the exploitation of others, there's a long history of the world acting that way. That is how the world has acted. And uh, Christians, shamefully, in our culture, uh, historically, have done this. And we just have to acknowledge that this was Christians adopting worldly thinking. This is not Christians being biblical. This is Christians being worldly and exhibiting the same ethos of, I will exploit you for the sake of my benefit, that our world is uh, bent towards. And if you're going to sustain that level of self-deception and hard-heartedness, you kind of have to only listen to people who think like you, right? That's right. I know one thing that's oftentimes said is, well, all of the uh, all of the men, all of the faithful biblical men who wrote so many of the theology textbooks that I have read and continue to read, well, they're just men of their times. Well, the reality is there were plenty of other men of their times that got it right. You know, well, Edwards owned slaves. He was a man of his time, yes, but there were plenty of other men of his times that did not. You think of men such as Will, William Wilberforce, John Newton. There were plenty of voices saying this is evil, but they were not listened to on the whole. Speaking positively about how perspicuity and diversity can go together, um, how, do, how do we apply this in our own lives as opposed to just looking back on history? I think one of the things that's important for us as, as Christians, you, you mentioned, uh, Austin, that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote of reading old books. So when it comes to perspicuity and kind of how we live today as Christians, I, I think one of the wonderful things that, that we can look at is that there are plenty of spheres in which we think as contemporary Christians that diversity uh, helps us in, in uh, our understanding of, of truth. So... One of those ways might be uh, reading individuals who are of different theological tribes. 
So Austin, you're a student here at, uh, at RTS. Uh, one of the things that we don't do is simply have you read things only by reformed individuals. There will be plenty of books, I assign plenty of books, that aren't necessarily coming from historical reformed theology, but offer really helpful material, because oftentimes people from different theological uh, traditions are, are asking different questions than our own traditions are asking. And when we only listen to our own traditions, we actually wind up narrowing the field of the questions that we're asking, and those get left out. So, you know, my doctoral studies, I read plenty of things by liberation theologians, individuals who I would say have even exceeded what it means to be Christian. And yet oftentimes the questions they're wrestling with are questions that we wind up being very uh, slow to engage with. And thing. So, so throughout our society, throughout our Christian culture, we understand that diversity is important. We think that it's important to read more than just one author. We think it's important to read from more than just one theological stripe. And I would push that towards uh, different uh, individuals of different ethnicities inside our culture as well. As you know, uh, we think particularly of the United States of America, we are not a cultural monolith. Not at all. No, not at all. Uh, especially as you think of immigration patterns that have widened what it means uh, to be uh, a resident of the United States of America. I grew up uh, in California, and uh, within uh, about 40 miles of my uh, college campus, there were 127 different languages spoken in homes. So, so we need to understand that America is an incredibly diverse uh, place. And those, uh, so, so there is a great amount of diversity of perspective towards biblical texts. And the more that we're able to engage with individuals who come from different cultures, who are of different ethnicities, we're going to be enriched by different questions that they've had to wrestle through. One of the transformative moments in my own life was in, in uh, sitting in my, my first semester of doctoral work. And uh, my professor, his name was Geraldo Alfaro. Uh, he was a uh, theologian from El Salvador, and he asked us the question, how many systematic theologies have you read that have a theology of the land? All of us in the room shook our heads and said, none. He said, well, any theology coming out of El Salvador has to answer that question because there's about six individuals who own all of the land inside of El Salvador, and it is one of the major ways of the exploitation of the individual by uh, kind of the economic hierarchy. And so... Any kind of native El Salvadorian theology is going to have to address the land, it being God's creation and God's earth, not simply a possession of the landed elite. It made me scratch my head and think, I have never thought of that before in my life. Well, that is a different perspective that helps us understand um, a facet of theology, a facet of good dirt that you can rub your hands through that perhaps more of our Western traditions haven't needed to engage with because of our societal foundations on uh, the ownership of personal property. I've never heard you say that. That is really fascinating. Um, what are some ways you've, you've shared that uh, ways you've been encouraged or helped to study ideas you haven't thought of? What are ways you've tried to encourage learning from those of different ethnicities? I think there's a couple things. First off, sometimes, and I'm speaking specifically to those who are in my Reformed camp, right? Uh, reformed tradition is a wonderful thing. But, but sometimes we can have this attitude that because we have Reformed theology down, we're now experts on everything. To where a wise uh, grasp of systematic theology means that we are experts in sociology, means that we are experts in uh, ethnic matters, means that we're experts politically, means that we're experts economically. And, and frankly, that's, that's just not true. Being an expert in theology perhaps uh, helps us understand 
uh, facets of God's perspective on these things. Uh, however, it does not make us individuals who know everything about these disciplines, or even enough to speak into all of these situations with wisdom. So I think the first thing is, is honestly to listen, right, is to listen. Uh, my uh, neighbors, we, we bought a new house about a year and a half ago, moved down uh, to Rock Hill, South Carolina, just outside Charlotte City Limits. And uh, my neighbors are uh, a faithful couple. They're in their 60s. Uh, my neighbor uh, in the Lord's Providence wound up being the librarian for a, uh, another seminary here in our city for about 20 years. He's been a black minister for 40 years of his life. And me simply listening to his experience as a black Christian growing up in South Carolina, ministering in South Carolina, gives me perspective that I don't have as a 35-year-old white man coming from the central coast of California. So being quick to listen and slow to speak is a biblical thing, and it's been honestly incredibly important for me and something I teach. Another thing is, uh, you know, I'm a professor, uh, so, so in my own classes, I intentionally have a book uh, each semester for every class that I teach uh, that is authored by a uh, woman or authored by an individual of a minority ethnicity. I do that because I think it's important for us to be uh, gaining uh, the perspective that shares the same theological commitments and yet is going to have different hues of a rainbow uh, kind of sprinkled through it by the fact that it is written by an individual whose perspective doesn't most overlap our own. And that's that's very helpful to hear. And you've shared a few already, but what are some ways you personally have benefited from hearing from writers or thinkers of different ethnicities? I think it's given me a certain amount of ideological humility. Um, and I realize, like, as soon as you say that, we don't want to be self-aware about humility. So I'm not saying necessarily personal humility. I'm saying ideological humility, right? Um, and Austin, being a good friend, can quickly attest to my often lack of personal humility. Um, you know, it's, it's just helped me understand that uh, we can inhabit the same spaces and have very different perspectives and then both be valid. My own experience of my culture is not the normative experience of my culture, right? And, and, and that's not true just in terms of black-white or white-Asian or whatever it may be. It's true in terms even of uh, different socioeconomic uh, spectrums within the same ethnicity, right? There are a multiplicity of different experiences of culture that are entirely valid. And it does not mean that someone who has a different experience than mine is lying. It doesn't mean that they're less faithful. It doesn't mean that they're a liberal. It doesn't mean that they're a thumping fundamentalist. Rather, there are different experiences that oftentimes fuel our different perspectives. I think that's so important. Isn't it interesting how we can kind of default to suspicion when we hear something that doesn't jive with our own experience? Oh, absolutely. And I think that comes partially because we assume that if our theology is right, then someone's going to come to our same perspective on something else. I think that's really insightful. I appreciate you saying it that way. Any pieces of encouragement for Christians, whether they're in the ethnic majority or minority, as we think broadly about understanding the Bible? I think my main encouragement is that, honestly, it's a lot more fun to read the scriptures when we have a diversity of perspectives, when we have a diversity of uh, vantage points that we're coming through, 
I don't think we usually think of the Bible in terms of fun. I think if we think of it in terms of kind of deep seriousness, and, and it is waiting. I don't mean to undermine any of that. But, friends, there is so much more joy to be had when listening to someone's el- el- someone else's perspective uh, is an opportunity to learn more as opposed to a threat to what you already believe. And if we engage in conversations uh, with individuals that might have uh, a little bit different shading of a particular text, a particular motif in Scripture than ours, it's actually an opportunity to rejoice that the, that the Lord's clear word has connected with someone in a way that I wouldn't understand. Uh, and that helps my knowledge of who God is, rather than being a threat to my existent knowledge. Uh, one of the books that I assign for one of my classes is a book called uh, Finding Our Voice. It's, a, it's actually a book on, Afri- uh, on uh, Asian American preaching. I'm sorry, uh, 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 North American. A- North, <laughs> I'll get this right eventually. Uh, Asian North American preaching. And that's an odd book to assign in a uh, counseling class. But I do it because the two authors who are seminary professors walk through their experience of uh, being uh, ethnic minorities and just how it's different uh, oftentimes than my majority uh, culture students there. And one of the things they share in this book is they share a a pretty famous study uh, where uh, the parable of the um, prodigal son was – was uh, there were some researchers who took the parable of the prodigal son and asked individuals from four different countries. Uh, there was the United States, Russia, a country in Africa, and I'm forgetting the last one, uh, to re- uh, just kind of get, walk through a survey of this uh, parable. And one of the questions on the survey is, uh, why did the prodigal son return home? And the different locations gave different answers. In Russia, something like 90% of respondents said famine. And inside the United States, 0% of the respondents said famine. That's very fascinating. That is. Why is that the case? Well, when you look at the histories of the two countries, one of them has a significant history of famine in living memory, and the other one does not. America certainly has a a history of famine with the Great Depression, but most individuals have passed away from that, and we've recovered with a great amount of prosperity. Russia, much more recently, uh, even thinking around uh, World War II era and things of that nature. And and that just shows how, you know, there's something that, in God's clear word, connected with Russian Christians that did not connect with American Christians. That opens, that's a fun thing to see, because it opens up our understanding of the word in a way that simply existing in our own little tribes does not. So it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to rejoice. Absolutely. I think that's well said. Um, Brother, if you're willing, I'd love to close our time in prayer for us and our listeners as we think about these things. Absolutely. I can start and you close us. Wonderful. Father, thank you for my brother. Thank you for the wisdom you've given him. Thank you for the humility you've given him in understanding that he doesn't know everything. Um, And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us all that humility, that we would be... um, not suspicious of our brothers and sisters who are not like us, who have different perspectives. Pray that you give us all wisdom uh, as we read your word to um, be able to sort through various perspectives and understand how they complement each other and just build a, a more full and accurate understanding of everything you've given us in your word. Pray that you help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. And Father, I too am 
grateful for how you're working in our hearts to draw us after your truth. Thank you that you've spoken in ways that we can understand how terrible it would be if you had spoken and then left us unable to penetrate what you'd written uh, with our hearts and minds. Father, I, I pray for us as uh, there are so many ways to misstep. There are so many ways to misunderstand. There are so many ways to be suspicious of each other, uh, especially this particular cultural moment. I ask that you would make us as Christians, people who are uh, quick to listen and slow to speak, quick to seek to understand uh, uh, those of us that are uh, or th those that are different than us in our spheres. And I ask that your, your church on the whole would come to a, a, a greater joy and delight in you because we're able to listen to a multitude of voices that emphasize different things that we might emphasize, that ask different questions we might ask. So we thank you, Lord, that you are drawing us towards yourself. We thank you that glorification awaits us one day when you make all things new. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the time, Dr. Brooks. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Austin. Friends, thank you for listening. As always, you can learn more about our ongoing work at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. Grace and peace. to God in prayer.